Hello and welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ben. And me, Ellie. So just before we get into the body of the podcast, we thought we'd say we've, well, we've got a bit to celebrate about the podcast. Um, We've hit some big milestones, but there's always too much to fit into one podcast episode as it is. So we're going to do a special extra podcast in a week. So normally they're fortnightly, but in a week, listen out. And we've uh, got some really good news to share about the podcast. We're both really pleased with how it's going and we've been really, really like loving all the excellent feedback from all of you so thank you very much and please do get in touch and let us know what you're doing for wildlife as well as what you think about the podcast but yeah we're not going to big ourselves up too much in this episode no we'll so, save that for next week yeah getting into this one um we'll talk about our sightings for this week yeah and it is getting to that time of the year already where i can't possibly list everything that we've seen because there's just so much of it which is really really good and yeah, yeah. the weather's warmed up and it's spring. all happening, isn't it? Well, we said this last time, spring has sprung, but it really is getting going now. We do like to try and keep our sightings to things we've seen in gardens. And, you know, we are gardeners, so we get a lot of um, opportunities for such things. But I will just mention, I went on a bit of a bike ride with a friend within the COVID restrictions the other night. And we very excitingly came across hundreds of toads crossing um, the cycle path to get to a pond we did have to get off our bikes because we would have definitely run them over, but that was pretty exciting. But also, even more exciting, we saw um, bats skimming over the pond and obviously feeding. And it was almost certainly going to be the Dorbenton's bat, which is actually known as the water bat for this tendency to fly over lakes and collect up any flying insects from the top of it, cool. which was pretty cool. Yeah, and I've got a bit of bat. I am trying to convince Ellie of this. I was camping out by a pond the other night and I think I heard them echolocating. So I came home and I told Ellie and then she didn't believe me. And we looked it up <laughs> and apparently some people can hear the uh, noctual bats. The sounds Which is that our they largest make. bat, I believe. Quite common um, or qu- uh, qu- commonly distributed at least. And yeah, I, so I was unsure about this, but I, I'm sure I heard it. And, you know, it goes it starts off slow the clicks and they build up as they're you know coming close to their prey and then it slows off again and it happened again and again and again and I've got a uh, a good argument with Ellie about this because we were listening oh no we were watching um Chris Packham's Animal Einsteins uh oh it was two weeks ago now and he had this sort of um sound generator where he went up in three stages in pitch as to what you can hear and I could hear the third one yeah and yeah yeah <laughs> Ben likes to pedal this he's five years younger than me and can therefore hear better and although I think your vision's starting to go isn't it yeah as I can't we, as see discussed. anything yeah. <laughs> but my so, hearing you'll yeah. catch up with me yeah. so but yeah I think uh, apparently you can hear them so I, yeah. I think that actually is what it was I mean I wasn't there so it's not that I wasn't hearing it I might be able to hear it we should go camping and find out um, we've also seen just yesterday actually three species of butterfly in one garden so they've obviously just emerged with the warmer temperatures this is Monday I'm talking about this yeah, week the sun came out and then they appeared so we saw brimstone small tortoiseshell and peacock which is unsurprisingly three of the five species of UK butterfly who actually overwinter as adults so they would be obviously the first to emerge yeah red admiral is another one isn't it we didn't see it, no any we didn't of them. see any red admiral they do yes and also um, we got a bit voyeuristic and I was in our garden uh, last week and saw 
well, first of all, I heard it like a very high pitched little chirping noise. And we've got this family of sparrows that live in the ivy just behind our house. And I looked up and I saw sparrow sex. Mm-hmm. They were getting very amorous. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully we'll get some baby sparrows this year. Oh, again. So, baby sparrows are so funny. They just when when the adults are in the feeders out the back, the babies just they don't really know how to control their bodies, do they? So they no. just sort of fly up and just fly straight into the parents and knock them off. And then sit there on the perch, but they, they haven't worked out doing. what to do. So oh. they don't even feed anything. Yeah. And then they expect the parents to come back and feed them. Honestly, this is why we don't need TV in this house. Um, but also yesterday, we saw many, many, many examples of pairs of ladybirds also getting busy in a, in a garden in the sunshine. Doing the wiggle. Doing the wiggle. We've and actually I, got a video of this. Ellie got a video, which we've put up on our Facebook page. I have, yes. Yeah. So if you, if you really want to see Ladybird Sex, it does come with an explicit content. Um, <laughs> I managed to get a little video of it, which was quite, they're very cute, really. So should we move on to this week's podcast news? Yes, indeed. Yep. Um, and well, you've already mentioned some of it, which is about toads, because toads are crossing roads at the minute. But a bit of news came up on Twitter, which I thought I'd share with you. And this is a call out from Amphibian and Reptile Conservation, one of the charities working um, with amphibians in the UK. And they are investigating the mystery of the missing toad. And what they are talking about is toad numbers, common toad numbers are dropping in the UK. But we don't really know why. As they say, they are calling for wildlife detectives as part of a PhD research project, which is being undertaken at the University of Wolverhampton. And what they're looking into, like I say, is why there are these mysterious declines in common toad populations around Britain. It could be a disease, it could be, um, sadly, toads being killed on roads as the roads are getting busier and busier each year. It could also be fragmentation of habitat. And so what they want to do is to actually take swabs from the mouths of toads um, to look at their genetic diversity. So amphibian and reptile conservation are looking into this. And Dr. John Wilkinson from the charity said, uh, we are asking volunteers to collect genetic samples in the form of toe tips from toads killed on roads, which that's, is the less pleasant. That's <laughs> tips idea. of toes, T-O-E, not toads. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> but also grim, mouth swabs from live toads. So this is where a lot of our listeners can come in because I know many of you out there um, already get involved in these toad patrols. A lot of you have also probably had a good go at practicing your mouth swabs with covid this year (laughs) so the combination is pretty good we're all practiced yeah exactly so yeah if you are either have um toads visiting your garden in large numbers either because you've got a pond or you're on a migration route to a pond or you are a member of a toad patrol which is a group of volunteers that go out and pick up toads that are trying to cross the road basically to get between their where they're just living out in the countryside for the rest of the year and their breeding pond. Um, volunteers go out and they, well, really, they just pick them up in buckets and move them over the road and release them into the pond. They're asking for people who do that sort of volunteering to get involved and to contact them. We'll put links to the press release and with who to contact in the show notes. But essentially, you get sent out all the protocols, all the kits, everything will be supplied to you. And it means if you're doing a toad patrol, say, you're going along, you're picking all the toads up into a bucket. 
you just add a stage between picking them up and releasing them into the pond. And all that is, is taking these swabs, you rub them around the mouth of the toad for 10 seconds. There's a really easy to follow um, YouTube video which tells you how to do it. Uh, yeah, you just take the swab, you bottle it up and then you release the toad. You know, it only adds um, a few seconds per toad, you know, in in the process. And loads and loads of people are going out and doing these toad patrols well, in a normal year. Sadly, um, a lot of them have been cancelled because of the coronavirus restrictions. But we are recording this after you can now go out with six people to do things outside again. Um, so yeah, if a tow patrol near you is opening back up and they are looking for volunteers, please do get in touch with these people. Yeah, you'll be part of a really important science project. And the only way they can get these samples you know, it's a PhD project, there's one person working on it. The only way they can get these samples from all around the country is if volunteers send them in. No, I think we should actually get involved. There's a tow patrol near us, which we've been, I think we may have mentioned this in episode one, but we we did accidentally find one evening and we went and gave them a bit of a hand. This is pre-COVID. No, it's a really good thing to do if you've got a free evening, particularly if it's a bit moist outside. So if it's been raining and this time of year, when temperatures are a bit milder, that's when they're most active. That's right. The toads are on the move between sort of the middle of January up to late April. Again, it depends on the weather when they start and where you are in the country. But it's well worth having a a look on Frog Life's website. They have a map you can just put in your postcode and they will tell you where the local ones are. They'll also tell you where they used to be if they've shut down. And that is a good sign that the toads are migrating there but you know sadly for whatever reason the volunteers have had to give up so it might be worth start if you know there was one local to you starting it up again all you have to do is get i mean it's literally just some mates with some buckets <laughs> you just walk up and down the road you know make sure you do it safely of course all the details are on frog life but you just walk up and down the road you pit, put them in the bucket walk over to where the pond is and release them that's it everything is in the show notes have a look and help solve this mystery of the missing toads. My news this week is another RHS article. Now, the RHS and the Wildlife Trust a couple of years ago collaborated and launched a Wild About Gardens project. And there's actually a website called Wild About Gardens. I think it's .org, but we'll, we'll link it to the show notes. And it's a really fantastic collaboration where they're trying to encourage wildlife gardening. So the same as us. And obviously we, we welcome this collaboration a lot. And it really goes to show that the RHS is really um, becoming more aware of this stuff. Yeah, they've moved from more of a, a plant horticultural charity to looking at gardens as a whole, haven't they? Including all the other life that's there, just apart from just the plants that you're buying. Exactly. This year, so the article that was just released, they are running a campaign within the Wild About Gardens project, which is called Bring Back Our Beetles. So as far as I can tell, I think each year they're going to maybe have a different focus. And I know either last year or the year before, they they were talking mostly about ponds and trying to encourage everyone to put a pond in their garden. So this year it's all about the beetles. And they're simply urging gardeners to create habitats for beetles. And that's anything that's in the Coleoptera order. I was quite surprised to see that the UK has over 4,000 species of beetle, which is absolutely mind-blowing, really. Yeah, amazing. And a lot of them, you know, people know about is the gardener's friend, the ladybird, which we obviously mention a lot because of how beneficial it is to our garden. But that's really the tip of the iceberg, as you can see by that 4,000 uh, 4, species number. Now, a handful of them do eat plants, 
Um, however, many, many, many more of them are really useful predators. So they're keeping populations of other species in check. I'm thinking about things like the rove beetles. So a lot of them actually eat slug eggs and vine weevil larvae and, and really important um, species in terms of the, that. A lot of them are also pollinators and also a lot of them are decomposers, which absolutely no garden would be without. Otherwise, we'd all be knee high and detritus. Yeah, the pollinators thing is it's really overlooked. Beetles are so important for pollination. Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, and as well as, you know, like most species, they're also a really important food source for other creatures like birds and hedgehogs. So absolutely, all in all, they're vital for a healthy garden. And under this banner of Wild About Gardens, the RHS and the Wildlife Trust have released this press release where they're trying to educate people about how best to help beetles within your garden. So many of them are actually under threat from the usual habitat loss, um, use of pesticides, and also, of course, climate change. So what can you do? In summary, uh, they give three different things that pretty much most people with a garden could have a go at. Now, one of them is building a beetle bank. And all this is, is a mound of soil. And especially in a garden, which tends to be a sort of flat relief, it, it creates a habitat whereby you are making shade and shelter and also a, a, an area of soil that's raised up above the rest, which will actually warm up. And it's just another type of habitat. And quite a lot of our rove beetles actually need that to, to exist in. If you don't just want a bold mound of soil in your garden, though, you can also overseed that with maybe some rough grasses. They, that really does benefit them, but also something like oxide daisies. So you've got something to put pretty to look at yourself. That's a really good way of introducing um, beetles. And actually, a couple of years ago, we were listening to Farming Today and we were really pleased to hear that some farmers are actually building beetle banks within their cropping fields. Well, what they were saying was that a lot of beetles can only, they, they've only got little legs. They can only walk so far. <laughs> and some of them fly, but not all do. And unfortunately, fields have been getting larger and larger as hedges have been grubbed out over years since World War Two, really. Um, and we'll be coming on to this in our main topic, which is about hedges. But as fields have become bigger, a lot of the beetles, which are actually beneficial predators on farmland, useful to the farmers, they simply can't get right into the middle of the field because the fields are too large. So instead, farmers are putting in these beetle banks in between fields, which means that they can just access one half of the field on one side and one half on the other within the reach that they can roam in a day. Yep, and then that's a, a really good way of uh, controlling pest populations. Another way is to, I think this is maybe if you've got a, a large, slightly larger garden, and that is to build yourself a dead hedge, which doesn't sound very good. But believe me, I've actually seen some photos on actually the Wildlife Gardening Forum of, of other people doing this. And they can look really beautiful, especially if you do them in a sort of structured way. So this basically consists of maybe having a few upright stakes just to contain the dead wood. And all you do is pile all of your twigs and, and woody prunings from the rest of your garden within those stakes and you create essentially a dead hedge. Now, this is really, really good for beetles and also many other species. It's just an area of undisturbed slowly rotting wood which a lot of species actually rely on and as I say it can actually look better than it sounds as well 
And finally, if you've got a really, really tiny garden, I quite like this one because I can imagine if you've got kids, it might be a fun little project to do maybe in an afternoon. And that is to create a beetle bucket. And all that entails is getting a bucket and filling it with rotting wood and leaves and then leaving it. And I think um, one of the benefits of having it in a bucket, A, is if you've got a small garden, you, you don't have the room for something like a dead hedge. But also, if, as I say, if you've got kids, you can then actually maybe even have a look within that bucket after a few months to see if you've actually got any good creepy crawlies to, to, to learn about. So those are three things that the RHS and the Wildlife Trust are trying to encourage all gardeners to have a go at this year. And yeah, if you if you decide to undertake one of these projects, then please do get in touch with us and let us know, A, how it looks, send us a photo, and also um, whether you actually notice any changes to the species that are coming to your garden. So moving on to our main topic of this podcast, we are going to be talking about, well, not dead hedges, but live hedges. Of course, all of us out there know what a hedge looks like, but we might not know how important that they are for wildlife, or indeed the history of hedges in our countryside. At a very basic level, hedges are really just strips of woodland edge or of scrub, which are in a line. Um, They're often interspersed with larger trees, and generally they're important because they link isolated patches of habitat across a wider landscape. But although they're absolutely fantastic for wildlife and are made up of loads of different native species, they're actually completely human creations. So where did they come from? The very first hedges were probably made by Bronze Age farmers who were clearing woodland to make fields and occasionally where they cleared one piece of woodland they would allow a strip of woodland to remain before they cleared a piece on the other side and that strip of woodland in between was the boundary between those fields so it wasn't for any um uh, wildlife benefits that they did this it was all territorial yeah unfortunately well there's reasons for keeping in stock you know you want to um you might want to graze cattle or something on one field and then move them into the next to allow the first to recover so they have had practical uses all the way back to well actually they can go all the way back to the neolithic period and i've actually worked on some of these really old hedges in dartmoor i went to university in plymouth and there was an organization there that took us out onto dartmoor to replant um the hedgerow trees that were on top of these earth banks that they had made and you just you know these are six thousand years old some of these features if you didn't know what you were looking at you would just think they were an earth bank and they were done in the last hundred years or so but some of them are really ancient Actually, I just want to mention now, if you are interested in this sort of stuff, I really recommend reading a book called The History of the Countryside. It's about the English countryside in particular, and also the Welsh countryside. And that's by Oliver Rackham, and it tells you everything you need to know. In fact, after we've both read it, and after we read it, well, we're just we're already geeks, but now we just point out all these features in the countryside, don't we? Yeah, we're so cool. We can't go on any train journey across the countryside in the UK without pointing out like a ridge and furrow field <laughs> yeah. or oh dear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, it's it is a wonderful book, and it will as soon as you can start to recognise these things, it makes a walk in the countryside a completely different experience because you're not just going for a wonder. All of a sudden, you're in a landscape. And you can see features that could be 6,000 years or older. Yes, I really recommend it. But basically, like we said, these early enclosures were boundaries for settlements or they were field boundaries, generally for keeping in stock. But they've been used for various other things as time has gone on. 
So the word hedge comes from the old English word hagger, and this means hedge or fence, and it's first documented in Anglo-Saxon charters, and these were um, documents that laid out where the boundaries of different, well, what we call now parishes are, and sometimes you can look at these Anglo-Saxon charters and you can still navigate your way around using the hedges and the features in the countryside that were labelled in these charters. But in terms of planting hedges as a as a, a purposeful thing, there was a rash of them in the Roman period. There was a lot of hedge planting in the medieval period where we first started to really enclose strip fields. And then as many of you will know, there was also a huge amount of hedge planting in the 18th century due to the Enclosures Act. And this was an act of, well, it was actually hundreds of different acts of parliament, which took common land and they essentially privatised it, putting hedges in to demarcate where the common land was and wasn't. And it took common land out of common ownership and into the hands of landlords and farm owners. So the hedges in our countryside can be from all of these different periods. The way you can tell a new from an old hedge, if you haven't read Oliver Rackham's book, is just generally to look for a wide variety of species. So the presence of poor colonisers, things like field maple, hazel, dogwood and spindle, um, often indicate older hedges. You know, if there's a mixture of those and they've got plastic tubes around them, (laughs) then it's obviously a brand new hedge. And fortunately, the um, sort of move to just planting hawthorn is waning a bit now as people realise the importance of hedges for wildlife. We're starting to plant more mixed native hedges all the way around the British countryside. So the reason we are talking about hedges is because although they're very ancient features in the British countryside, and although they're vital for wildlife, and they replicate a lot of the lost woodland habitat that used to be Um, a major part of the British countryside. Since World War II, we have lost an estimated 50% of our hedgerows. Really, this was just because after World War II, the British government thought that it really needed to focus on Britain becoming self-sufficient in food. And so there were financial incentives available to remove hedgerows, to make larger fields, which were they considered to be more efficient. And as we got larger fields, there was larger machinery and larger machinery simply couldn't fit through a lot of the hedge gaps and farmers just ripped a lot of the hedges up. What's quite sad is that we're not actually self-sufficient in food. So we've lost all these hedgerows and still haven't achieved that. (laughs) Yeah, well, we sort of realised this. Hedges were disappearing until the mid 1990s. And since then, there's been a real push to put hedges back into the countryside. But losses do still continue, not because we're not planting hedges, but because a lot of the ancient hedges that are in the countryside are essentially growing into lines of trees because of lack of management. And hedges do need management. Again, they're not a natural feature. And the only way they stay hedges rather than just long, thin strips of trees is by constant management. So what plant species would actually make up a mixed native hedge? Well, We've already mentioned hawthorn. Of course, there's blackthorn as well. Things like field maple, hazel and spindle, which are really just small trees kept small in the hedge by management. We have gelder rose, which is a type of native viburnum, a beautiful shrub in its own right. And I'm sure one day we'll cover this as our native plant of the week. We've got wild privet, as well as the woody species. Of course, you have all the ramblers. So you've got things like bramble and rose in amongst them climbing honeysuckle and the wild clematis as well. 
which is also known as old man's beard. Yeah, it does look like beards, doesn't it? It does, yeah. So why are they important for wildlife? Well, half of our priority species of mammals, so these are mammals which are at risk of population decline, make significant use of hedgerows for food and to travel through landscapes. It's a, the clue is in the name for one of them. What? The hedgehog. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I actually didn't get that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, 84% of our farmland birds rely on hedgerows for food and protection. And for over half of these birds, the hedge is their primary habitat. Of those species, in the countryside where hedges can grow taller, about four metres tall or more, you're more likely to find bullfinches and turtle doves nesting. But in gardens, where hedges tend to be shorter, you're still likely to find a lot of birds like wrens, robins, dunnocks that um, tend to nest low down, but also song thrushes, blackbirds, chaffinches and greenfinches as well will all nest in hedges that grow up to the sizes you tend to find in gardens. Over 500 native plant species have been recorded as being supported by hedgerows. Which is really good for us because doing our native plant of the podcast, that's going to keep us in business for quite a while, <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> We're I mean, here to stay, guys. <laughs> I think almost all of our plants so far can be found in hedgerows. Pretty much, yeah. 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 Over 1,500 different insect species have been found feeding on or living in hedgerows and they provide a massive food resource in turn, you know, these insects are in turn food for birds and bats and other mammals. In the countryside, but also along roads where you have hedges, you might often find ditches and banks associated with them. And these provide habitat for frogs, toads and newts, um, some reptiles as well. And also look out for bumblebees, which use hedgerows as navigation aids, but quite often nest at the base of hedgerows too. And bats also use them for navigation. Yeah, and in fact, um, we've actually seen this where, this is a bit sad, but where hedgerows have been taken out, for example, to put in a new road, there have been conservation efforts in some places whereby they put up a sort of fake hedge along the line of the old hedge. And it consists of a sort of, if you imagine like a an oblong mesh and it, it mimics the density of the leaves so that the bats can keep using that as their navigation tool using their echolocation it would be the equivalent of actually just removing all the footpaths for humans to get rid of hedges in terms of its impact on wildlife yeah that's exactly right yeah um, and at the base of lots of hedges ellie's already mentioned dead hedges at the base of you know well live hedges you also you also tend to get a lot of dead material so that's just twiggy growth um it's dead leaves it can be dead standing trees that were part of the hedge and have just died for whatever reason um and these are also really important because some of our most charismatic beetles and flies depend on dead wood things like the stag beetle which is one of britain's largest beetles relies on wood that's partially buried underground um, and if you've got pollarded trees or, or trees with um, big holes in them that fill up with water, you might find in certain parts of the country breeding, uh, well, they're called the golden hoverfly. And these are really quite rare, but they rely on this dead standing wood, particularly holes in pollarded trees. So and to specific, breed. isn't it? Which yeah. is why wildlife gardening is all about habitat gardening. So the more variety of habitat you can achieve in your garden, then the more species you can attract. Exactly. No so, hole is too small. No. <laughs> so we want to talk about three particular species that really rely on hedges just to press home how important they are. Because these three, well, there is groups of species are 
completely dependent on hedges and hedge-like habitats for their life. So to start with, we have the hazel dormouse, and these are just beautiful little mice. Um, Sadly, they're in decline, quite severe decline, but they've got a beautiful golden brown fur, large black eyes, and I mean, we've never seen one. We've seen them on TV and in the books and things, but well, part of the reason we've never seen them is that they're nocturnal. Um, Apart from just being rare, they also spend almost all of their time in the branches of trees during the summer, and rarely do they ever come down into the ground, apart from to nest. Um, They have sometimes been found asleep in old birds' nests, um, but they actually weave their own nests, often in brambles or other shrubs, um, from strips of honeysuckle bark. And again, we know honeysuckle is a common hedgerow plant, uh, and this nest is then surrounded by a layer of green leaves as well. And between October and May, dormice hibernate in these nests beneath the leaf litter or sometimes right at the base of hedgerows. And again, because it's mimicking this woodland edge habitat, that's it's really specific what they're looking for. And yeah, sadly, part of the reason for their decline is the loss of hedgerows in our countryside. Another typical example is the brown hair streak butterfly and again it might be something that you've not noticed because it spends most of its adult life at the tops of trees um, although they do visit some of the flowers along the field margins things like hogweed thistles and hemp agrimony as well but these hair streak butterflies share a common feature in their life cycle which is they spend the majority of their lives as an egg so this egg is laid by the adults in the summer and then it hatches into a caterpillar the following spring. But with brown hair streaks and the black hair streak butterfly, these eggs are laid specifically on two to three year old growth on blackthorn. And again, as a common hedgerow plant, this growth is going to be the young growth right at the sort of edge of the hedge. And so if you come along, you trim it all off, then of course, you're getting rid of all of those eggs. But yeah, this butterfly is absolutely dependent on hedges and field margins on woodland edge habitat for their life cycle so it just shows how entwined some of these species are with the life cycle of a hedge and finally bats now i recently read an article it's called managing hedgerows for nocturnal wildlife do bats and their insect prey benefit from targeted agri-environment schemes and these are the you know the farm schemes that lots of farmers sign up for where they get a payment to do things that are good for wildlife and one of the things that they encourage them to do with hedges is either not to cut them or to adjust the time that they're cutting them these researchers went on to a different number of different farm sites and they looked at hedges that had been cut within the previous year hedges that hadn't been cut within two years three years and so on and what they found was really interesting So unsurprisingly, first of all, they found that in hedges that hadn't been cut, structural diversity and compositional complexity were significantly increased. And what that's simply saying is that there was the actual structure of the hedge was more complex. You had more different species in the hedge if you trimmed it less frequently. You tended to have them wider with a greater variation in height as you went along the hedge. Um, And this increase in complexity was really obvious with the reduced amount of trimming. And this feeds into a couple of different things. So they looked at the number of bats and the amount of insects that were associated with these hedges in different stages, at different stages of of trimming. And it was found that there were quite significant positive 
um, relationships between the longer you left the hedge before cutting and the number and diversity of bats and the quantity and diversity of insects too. In hedges that were trimmed at least three years prior to sampling, so they've had three clear years of not being trimmed, they found greater bat species richness, greater insect family richness, and diptera in abundance. And the diptera are the flies, as we've talked about before. First of all, reduced trimming frequency may improve the quality of hedgerose's corridors, which is attracting the bats to go past these hedges. And that's because a more complex hedge, which is greater height, it's more rough and twiggy, it's wider, probably is a better acoustic landmark for bats. And the second thing they looked at was whether the reduced trimming increased the insect abundance, and it did, and it might just be that the bats were coming because there were more insects, so that's more food. In particular, they found an increase in fly numbers, but there was also, in line with several other studies looking at um, reducing hedge trimming frequency, there were also um, many more moths, night flying moths. And again, they are one of the key foods for bats. So while this study looked at, you know, hedgerows around farms in the countryside, there is no reason to assume that things should be any different in an urban environment. I would make sort of the assumption that if you trimmed your hedges less frequently in your gardens, that you're more likely to have more insect life, you're more likely to have uh, a greater sort of structural complexity of this hedge, and so it's going to be much better for bats. And of course, if you've got greater insect diversity during the night, you're probably also going to have greater insect diversity during the day, and that is really important food for all of the garden birds that we like having coming into our gardens as well. So moving on to gardens... We're going to give you some top tips for how to maintain hedges if you've already got them that are better for wildlife, what to do. But first of all, we just wanted to mention that we've actually, we've had somebody contact us to say that they've seen some hedge vandalism in their local area. Yeah, well done to the wildlife detective out there. Yeah. You know who you are. Yeah. (laughs) So we're calling this hedge vandalism because, well, first of all, it's illegal. um, But secondly, it's really bad for wildlife. So this person wrote in and they said that they came home, this was recently, in the last couple of weeks, they came home to find that some contractors were cutting down a hedge near to where they live. Now, it is illegal under the Wildlife and Countryside Act to disturb nesting birds. This listener already knew there were nesting birds in this hedge and so they actually contacted the police about this and this is an amazing story. First of all, they contacted the police didn't sound very interested apparently and um, they put the phone down and then a few minutes later the police turned up and they actually stopped these contractors doing the work this listener also contacted their local council again didn't sound very interested until they told them that the police were involved and now the council the local council are investigating this too and what this shows is that it is really important not to assume that somebody else is doing something about this and we were pointed onto this before by a talk you went to wasn't it with the wildlife trust yeah and they were talking about developers where they were saying that just generally if you see a developer you know building a housing estate something like that and they're destroying a hedge lots of people will just walk past assuming that they've got permission to do this or that they've put mitigation measures in place or that it's legal when it isn't and they simply rely on the fact that nobody is going to notice or that nobody's going to bother to do anything about it So this hedge vandalism happens all the time and 
well done to that listener who put a stop to this and actually got this investigated because hedges that contain nesting birds it is illegal to disturb that nest this is a criminal matter it's not a civil matter it is the police's responsibility to enforce this law yeah no matter how disinterested they actually sound when you speak to them on the phone if you look online about what to do if you if you see this happening they will often recommend uh, either phoning the rspb or calling 101 the police um, non-emergency number now yes it's not a threat necessarily to people's lives, but I had a quick look at Nottinghamshire's Wildlife Crime Unit to see if there was a permanent full-time wildlife officer, and there isn't. There are some special constables who I'm sure do a great job, but they're part-time police, um, and this was done on a Saturday morning, probably when they're not on duty. You know, if you phoned 101, it's going to be put down as not an emergency, nobody's going to pay any attention to it until the special constable comes along on duty as the wild you know as a volunteer wildlife officer and by that point it's probably too late the hedge is gone and yes the the person might get a fine but the chances of that happening again are pretty slim so you know all the benefit of that hedge for wildlife is gone so i really would recommend we will put the details into the show notes for where to contact the rspb you can contact the wildlife trust as well if you think a developer is um you know your local wildlife trust if you think a developer is um doing something illegally it's well worth getting in touch just because they often know what big developments are happening so they'll they'll be able to tell you um don't be afraid to phone 999 if you see a wildlife crime in progress phone the emergency police number and they might come and do something about it even if you're then told that they actually have got permission or there have been some mitigation um, measures put in place that you don't know about, you've lost nothing. Yeah, I would assume if you are in the nesting period that it's probably not legal. Now, if you're in the countryside, as, as I say, things are a bit different. All hedges are protected in the countryside, whether or not it's the nesting season. So if you're out in suburbia or in a rural environment, Please, again, keep an eye on the hedges and what's happening to them locally. Basically, a hedgerow in the countryside is protected if it's more than 20 metres long, um, if it's next to um, land used by agriculture or forestry, common land, if it's hedges around a village green, if it's around a site of special scientific interest or a local nature reserve, many other instances they are protected. And so if somebody's ripping out a hedge in these instances, again, if it's during nesting period, phone the police. And if it's outside of the nesting period, then depending on the exact situation, you need to phone different people. But we will put all the information in the show notes. So please do have a look. And yeah, even if you're in the countryside, it is not legal for farmers just to rip up hedges just because they find it easier to access different areas of their fields. I quite like encouraging our listeners to be undercover wildlife detectives. Yeah, vigilantes. All of you, yeah, the vigilantes. Go forth, yeah. <laughs> warriors. <laughs> no, okay, it's really so good. Putting that to one side now, um, if you have a hedge in your garden and you want to know the correct time to prune it, here's what you need to do. 
We normally do our big hedge cutting work. If we're doing renovation of a hedge, that's really cutting hard into the main body of a hedge. We tend to do that sometime between Christmas and the 1st of March. You know, we tend to do it in February because most of the gardening jobs are done by then. And there's good reason to do this. If you get a hedge that is grown up and it's really twiggy and leggy, you know, you've got clear stems at the bottom with no growth, then it's good to get in there to cut down a proportion of the the old plants in there right the way down to the ground and they'll reshoot uh, and fill in those gaps it also means that they're just about to come into growth so whether you've got deciduous um, dormant shrub or hedge plant like hawthorn or even if you've got an evergreen something like a yew then it's not long before it greens up again so even if you're cutting quite hard into it so it doesn't look bad as well between then and september when you can cut them again if you've got, you know, a, a rose in the hedge and it's sprawled right out over the path, you know, and it's catching you every time you walk past, there is no harm in getting a set of hand shears and just lightly trimming any really clear straggly bits. Absolutely fine. You know, you're not going to disturb any nesting birds by quickly hand trimming um, some straggling um, branches that are coming off the sides but you don't want to be getting in there with really loud petrol hedge trimmers or anything like that because you will disturb the nesting birds but as we come around to september when the nesting season's over you can then give it another tidy up so if you're looking for a formal look and you want to trim it over to keep its shape over the winter which can look really good with things like beech hedges particularly in the frost or if you've got evergreens like you um, it's worth giving them another go over in september and they'll because they're growing slowly at that time of year they'll then keep that shape right the way through to the spring but if you do want to have a hedge that is best for wildlife then we do the maintenance in a slightly different way we split a hedge into three or four sections each year in February we'll go in and we'll hard cut one of those sections so one third or one fourth of the hedge if it's leggy we'll cut some of them right down to the ground we might cut a third of the stems of whatever species it is right down to the ground and allow them to reshoot from there you know and if it's got really wide you can just cut it hard back to a meter two meters wide whatever suits your space and then just leave it for the next couple of years before you do that again the rest of the hedge you should leave now over a cup over one year what that means is you've got one bit which you've just cut hard one bit which is one year old one bit which is two year old and if you're cutting only a quarter each year one bit which is four years old and because like we say things take a while to grow up to flower and then to fruit it means that at least or two-thirds or half of your hedge is fruiting and flowering every year whereas if you're cutting it all back every year none of it is going to fruit and flower every year Um, there are exceptions things like hawthorn you can get away with and blackthorn you can get away with trimming back but gelder rose honeysuckle some of the roses you know you really want to um, allow them the space to grow out and to flower and they'll do better for you they'll look more beautiful and they're better for wildlife too and you're not getting rid of all of those eggs and pupae yeah hiding on the underside of the leaves yeah so that's how we manage mixed native hedgerows in people's gardens so the final thing to say is if you've got the choice in your garden between a fence and a hedge always choose the hedge they are really important for wildlife for all the reasons we've just described a fence does nothing for wildlife and as we've said in previous episodes life begets life so always choose the hedge 
which then leads me on to this week's native plant of the week. It's a timely plant in its flowering probably right now, and that is the Narcissus pseudo-Narcissus, which is the wild daffodil. It's also got a hell of a lot of other names. Um, I won't go into all of them, but just as an example, it's also known as the chalice flower, the daffy down dilly, which is one of my favourites, and also eggs and bacon, which is quite nice, which refers, I think, to the colour of it. Now, the Narcissus pseudo-Narcissus comes from a bulb. I think most people are aware of that. And you get one flower per bulb on a single stem to about 30 centimetres tall. And this flower consists of six pale yellow tepals. Now, I hear everyone saying, what the hell's a tepal? <laughs> <laughs> and this is where we, we do love a bit of botany in this, but don't worry. We, we're going to try and repeat this stuff as much as we can in our native plant, just so that it... Uh, just so that people understand it more, really. Um, and also because we find it fascinating. But yes, a tepal is something between a petal and a sepal. Now, a petal, most people are probably aware, are the really beautiful parts of a flower. And that is what attracts the insects usually in to come and pollinate. Now, a sepal on most plants, I think it's fair to say, actually is normally just a green part. And you normally find it right at the base of the flower. And that's just a sort of protective structure. So with the Narcissus pseudo-Narcissus, what you've actually got are these tepals, which is just what botanists have called something between a petal and a sepal. When they don't know what it is. Just combine the words. They call it a tepal. (laughs) And these six pale yellow tepals form what is known as the perianth. And this is another word that we might bring in in future episodes. And that just describes the sterile part of a flower. Um, So there are no sexual organs there. Now, within this, these six petals are in a sort of circle, is the bright yellow trumpet, which everyone associates with the daffodil. And this is called the corona. And in this particular species, it's frilled at its edges. It's really beautiful. It's actually formed by fused petals. So it's a single unit, but it's actually fused petals that make up the the trumpet in a daffodil. They have greyish-green strap-like leaves. And as I said, they're flowering in March to April. I've not actually been anywhere where I've seen wild daffodils. I've never seen a wild population. (gasps) Oh, you're missing out. I didn't realise you'd never seen a wild population. Have you? Yeah, in Gloucestershire. Yeah. No, we drove. I drove right past a huge stand of them. Why are you going wildlife, wild flower, daffodil spotting without me? (laughs) It was before I knew, honest, honest, Gav. Um, the flower itself. <laughs> Making uh, secret trips out to Gloucestershire <laughs> to see wildflowers. <laughs> You're on to me. You're on to me. Um, the flower itself is actually smaller than a lot of the larger bread varieties and cultivars that we all know about. And, you know, when you go shopping for, for daffodils, everyone's aware of the huge variety that exists. However, I personally think that its size doesn't mean that it's any less beautiful. Um, where it's growing in a swathe or a carpet, then it's also called a host of daffodils. Host of golden daffodils. Yes, you are. You are. Ben is very poetic, but it, it features in Wordsworth's poem, I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud. That's right. The plant is native to Western Europe and it runs all the way from Spain and Portugal to Germany in the east and then north up to obviously England and Wales. It likes quite a large range of habitat and you can find it in deciduous woodland 
also in open grassland and also in rocky ground. And it is also in the Amaryllis family. So that's the Amaryllidaceae. It has, as far as my reading has shown, a huge amount of history and folklore associated with it. So I'm going to give you just a real summary as much as possible, because actually at times when I was reading, there's quite, there's quite a lot of it that was actually contested as well. So, um, so if you are interested in this, and I do actually have another book recommendation, and that is Flora Britannica by Richard Maybe. It's a huge book. Um, if you can borrow it from a library, that's really good. But also if you're really interested in history and folklore of plants, then I recommend it as something maybe to have on your bookshelf. So the wild daffodil got its Latin name, Narcissus, from an ancient Greek myth. And that is that Narcissus fell in love with his own reflection in a pool of water and he became so obsessed with it that he fell in and drowned. It's believed, therefore, that the nodding head of the wild daffodil embodies Narcissus bending over the water. And if you look at the wild daffodil, it is quite a humble flower. It's, It's not at all upright. It sort of nods its head down to the ground, which makes, I think, it look even more beautiful and delicate. And it's said that the first flower sprang from where Narcissus died. It used to be one of the most widespread wildflowers in England and Wales, And, for example, meadows surrounding London used to be absolutely full of them. And they were widely picked for bringing indoors because they're a really beautiful flower, much like we we all buy daffodils in the spring now. In some places, they're even used as a catch crop for farmers who used to grow the Narcissus pseudonarcissus in their fields for picking and then selling before then growing hay for the rest of the year. So it was like an an extra income for them. Unfortunately, swathes of the wild daffodil have now since disappeared from our countryside, and this has been since around the 19th century. However, picking was not the actual cause of this. In fact, existing populations actually tend to be where picking was most frequent. So instead, there's a belief that it's a mixture of intensified agriculture, associated woodland clearance, and potentially a bit of climate change as well. There's also the potential for wild daffodils to hybridise with the cultivated varieties that we tend to see in municipal planting and also in our own gardens. So at present, it actually has quite a strangely disjointed distribution. Um, There's a big population in South Devon. It's also the national flower of Wales, which I'll go into a little bit later in more detail. And also the county flower of Gloucestershire, which is where I saw them. Honest. We've been sneaking off to... <laughs> Snuck off to Gloucestershire without <laughs> you. And in fact, in Gloucestershire, it's so well known for its uh, population of wild daffodils that there's an area known as the Golden Triangle. And in the 1980s, they someone really wanted to celebrate this heritage. And there's now a 10-mile footpath that you can undertake called the Daffodil Way, where apparently you're never out of sight of a wild daffodil on the entire stretch which is quite cool. Yeah, jealous of anybody living down that way. I'd yeah. go and have a look now. Yeah, definitely. Um, they're also found in the Lake District and also in uh, some other places. Two of its names are the Lent Lily or the Easter Lily, and that is simply because it often blooms in the Lenten period. And in the language of flowers, it represents hope, folly and unrequited love. So possibly not something for a wedding based on that <laughs> last meaning. <laughs> Now, there are chemical compounds within Narcissus pseudonarcissus, which are used by in pharmaceuticals for various things. However, they're extremely poisonous, so they're not for any sort of home medicinal use. 
And this is because they contain the alkali poison lysine or lycorine. Please, someone do correct my pronunciation if you know better. When an extract of the bulb has been applied to open wounds, it's called staggering numbness of the whole nervous system and paralysis of the heart, which made me wonder what poor soul had that applied to them. <laughs> yeah, and who was whether the guinea pig for um, that one? Whether they're okay now. But anyway, I didn't read any more about that. So that's a potted history of the uh, Narcissus pseudonarcissus in England and Wales, which means it's now time to discuss the sexual antics of the Narcissus, pseudo-Narcissus. Like a lot of other species that we've talked about so far on this podcast, they have hermaphrodite flowers and therefore contain both male and female organs. However, like a lot of the other species that we've talked about, they are outcrossing, which means they need another individual for successful pollination. Now, it's within the trumpet that the male stamens containing the pollen are contained. And at the base of that is where you find the female ovary. They are pretty much exclusively bee pollinated. At least that's what the records suggest. And I'll talk about that in a little while. And when successful pollination has occurred, obviously the seeds are produced. Now, these seeds will ripen on the sermon. and when they're ready, they're dispersed passively from the parent, which just simply means the stem will collapse, the seeds will fall out, and they'll just simply roll into nearby cracks in the soil or maybe into vegetation nearby. They are dormant, these seeds, when they're actually dispersed. And all this ensures is that germination doesn't happen when the environmental conditions aren't right for establishment of the, the seedling from that seed. And a lot of plants do this. And we've talked about uh, vernal stratification um, and cold stratification, which just means that some seeds need a period of cold before they'll actually germinate. With the narcissus, pseudo-narcissus, what you actually need is summer temperatures for them to then germinate in the autumn. And lab testing has shown that seeds need about 120 days of 20 degrees for maximal germination. Critically, though, the seeds do not like to be fully dried out. And interestingly, linked to that, it's also been found that there may be an adaptation of the seed to be sensitive to fluctuating air temperatures and also light levels to prevent it from germinating on or near the soil surface. So as I said, because they're dispersed passively, some might just end up on the soil surface, which isn't a great place for a a new seedling to actually be... um, establishing itself because it's got more chance of actually drying out so yeah this um this sensitivity to light and air temperature means that it just won't germinate if it's not in the right place and this also i guess then helps to explain why it's got this sort of tendency towards the western part of the country yeah potentially yes because i mean in the certain parts of the east of england and particularly in the southeast you might well you'll easily get these 120 days of 20 degrees but, but it's much, much drier. Exactly. You wouldn't necessarily get it with the rain in between at the right time of year. But whereas obviously in Wales or in the Lake District, you, you'd be getting rain, you know, on and off year round, even in the summer. Yeah, it's definitely a possibility. For seeds that don't germinate successfully in that first year, there is also a possibility that secondary dormancy can be induced. So that's, like I say, if it's not in the right place. But also if we happen to have a really, really bad summer where you don't get 120 days at 20 degrees, then rather than that seed just dying a death, it actually can go into secondary dormancy and still be viable for up to one and even two years 
after that point, which is a really good adaptation for the plant in terms of its successful propagation. Just hunkers down when it's not it does. good for it. As well as the sexual reproduction, it also can undergo asexual reproduction like a lot of plants. And it does this by one of two ways. And one of which is by the bulking up of the bulb under, underground by producing these offsets or bulblets. And I don't know if, uh, if you've planted bulbs at home, then you quite often, you know, you get a bag of bulbs and some of them will have these mini bulbs attached to the outside of, of the parent bulb. And that's basically what you're talking about. And yeah, they just... I always do a little celebration when you buy a pack of expensive bulbs and, and you then get you get some ones. free ones stuck on the side. <laughs> I always think I've got one over on on the man then. <laughs> yeah, precisely. And the second way is by bulbill production. So we've had bulblets, which are also known as offsets, but also bulbils. And the Narcissus pseudo-Narcissus can also develop these and they just mean very, very tiny bulbs and they're located on the stem. Now, if you want to grow these in your garden... I think probably most people would be quite successful just because of their unfussy nature. And they can cope with sandy, loamy or even clay soil. And that's also acid through to neutral and even alkaline. So really fantastic plant just for most gardens. They can tolerate bright full sun. As I say, they grow in open grassland, but also part the part shade of maybe like a deciduous tree or something. However, it does require a bit of moisture. They don't like drying out entirely, especially if you're trying to naturalize them. Um, they, they probably won't tolerate a really dry area. When you actually come to planting them, then the general rule is to plant the bulb at one and a half to two times its own depth in the autumn. Yes, but don't be afraid to plant them deeper if you've got a problem with dastardly squirrels like we have in lots of our gardens. Um, they really love digging up your hard planted bulbs and chomping them for dinner. I mean, there's really nothing, not much that squirrels haven't been uh, known to eat in gardens. But yes, bulbs is one of their favourite. And I, I did actually start to get really paranoid last autumn because I was absolutely convinced that they were watching me from behind. Oh, and yeah. like making. They make notes. Yeah, they do. They take notes. Yeah. I heard the little pencil on the paper, like scribbling away a yeah. map of where all <laughs> exactly. the bulbs are. Anyway, that's yeah. just my paranoia yeah so you can't you can plant them deeper we've had some success with dusting bowls with chili powder in pots before planting them in when, pots, when in exactly. pots because yeah. i wouldn't like to add chili powder to open ground because of all the other soil fauna yeah. but yeah in pots it works really well and unless we actually joked that they get a taste for chili so if you haven't already got the wild daffodil in your garden but you think you've got the right conditions and you want this beautiful swathe of of lemon yellow at this time of year then by all means go to any reputable wildflower specialist and get yourself some bulbs in autumn and that's when you'd be planting them alternatively you might have a very kind and generous friend or neighbor or maybe you've already got a stand of narcissus and you'd like to increase the population in your garden and there are lots of different ways you can do this now, I think that the easiest way by far is this division of the bulbs. What bulbs do tend to do over time in the ground is to bulk up naturally with this asexual reproduction and creation of bulblets. So once the leaves have died down, so the flowers have gone over, you can dig up the, your wild daffodils and you can assess which ones have these bulblets. And you can either just pop them all back into the ground, obviously space them out, or you could, if you would like to mollycoddle your, your new smaller bulbs, then you could pop them into a pot maybe in compost and just just 
basically just ensure that they really don't dry out over the summer just to give them the best chance of beefing up. And then you just plant them out in autumn as normal. Now, because they're smaller, they may not flower in the first year, but you're just ensuring that those bulbs will go on to to be able to have the space to actually expand and then flower in the future. Alternatively, if you want to wait even longer, then you can take these bulbils from the stem and again, plant them up into compost first, if I was you, because otherwise you probably lose them. And then you just, yeah, keep keep them in compost, keep them moist, let them grow up each year and, and they will just eventually bulk up to form a proper bulb which you can then when it's ready put into the ground in autumn yeah i have a not a correction from last time but something i thought about when so last time we talked about bulb bills coming from celandine and i mentioned that in the paper we read they called them corline auxiliary tubercules and i thought i'd bother to read up what that actually meant and uh, the corline bit just means it's related to the leaf um, but the important thing is the tubercule. And that's because with these um, narcissus, the bulbil is a miniature bulb. And with the uh, with the celandine, it's a miniature tuber. And the difference is, in case you don't know, a, a bulb is a modified set of leaves. And if you cut halfway through a bulb, you can almost see these leaves all curled up together. Whereas a, a tuber is a modified stem. So these bulbils that you get on the stems of um of uh these daffodils are true bulbs that will bulk up and become you know normal bulbs when they go into the compost whereas with the celandine that we talked about before they're actually little tubers like potatoes and they'll become bulked up tubers when they go into the soil nice an alternative way of propagating which again is probably for those of you who don't mind uh, waiting a little bit for for flowers, and that is to grow from seed. Now, a lot of people plant things like daffodils in maybe a lawn area, and and therefore you're you're maybe willing or want them to naturalise into that area. And that's a really good way of doing that. And like I said before, in terms of how it, it works, the seed will just sort of ripen on the plant and then it will passively disperse and you'll probably if the conditions are right, get more daffodils that way over time. You can aid this by not cutting down the stems um, and also leaving the leaves of all the plants that do grow up, no matter how small, because you can imagine these these seeds will germinate if the conditions are right, but you might not even be able to necessarily notice their leaves because they'll be so tiny for the first few years. So yeah, not mowing until the leaves are died down is really important. Alternatively, you might want to actually aid propagation. And I think it'd be quite a fun task for us to do as well, if we can get ourselves some narcissus seed. And that is to collect the seed just at the point at which it looks like it the seed head is about to burst open and disperse those seeds and you just sow them into compost probably about a centimetre deep um, into moist compost and then keep that moist over the summer somewhere warm as you say it needs 120 days at 20 degrees centigrade and then hopefully you'll get some germination in the autumn and then you you'd wait and for that to bulk up into a bulb and then you can plant it out and alternatively With a lot of bulbs, you can also do something called chipping. I'm not going to go into all the detail about how to chip your bulbs, but all it really means is when you've got a nice, juicy, mature, virus-free bulb, when it's leafless and dormant, you can lift that from the soil and you can essentially just chop it into sections. 
and you can you can do any as much as 16 sections from one bowl depending on how big it is but that would most, be a really big daffodil bowl it though. would be yes but the most important thing with that is that you need to make sure that every single chip has a a part of the basal plate and that just means where the roots come out and it's quite obvious where that basal plate is we are going to link to exactly how you do that from uh, the instructions on the RHS webpage into our show notes. So I won't go into any more detail, but it is a really good way of obtaining more bulbs from from one single bulb if you don't want to go out and buy. Of course. Yeah, it, for either taking them from seed, chippings, offsets, bulb bills, whatever. If you want one book that is going to tell you how to do all of that, I really recommend the RHS's book um, on propagation, the Encyclopedia. What is it? The Encyclopedia of Propagation, mm, I think. Yeah. That will tell you how to do all of these techniques. It's a fantastic book if you want to get into this stuff. Yeah, if you want to be saving money on plants, I mean, it's an absolute no-brainer because you can obtain plants for free from all these different propagation techniques. Wonderful book. So once you've got your uh, narcissus, then what on earth are they good for in terms of wildlife? Now, I've said that they're almost exclusively bee-pollinated and yeah, in terms of the records on this, I could only see that about eight to nine types of bee um, have been found on the narcissus actually using, collecting the pollen from it. And this includes the buff and white-tailed bumblebees, the tree bumblebee, the common carder bee, the red-tailed bumblebee, the small garden bumblebee, and also the early bumblebee, and also the honeybee actually as well, so not just bumblebees. So yeah, it's really important food source for those for those creatures at this time of year because you know although it's warmer, there still isn't a huge variety of pollen out there for them. And also in terms of a food plant, um, there are three species that have been recorded using the Narcissus pseudonarcissus, and that is the daffodil fly, uh, a type of swift moth, and also the shallot aphid. So finally, I was just going to talk a little bit about the different forms of, of the Narcissus pseudonarcissus that you might be able to actually get. Now, subspecies do exist. However, numbers of subspecies actually differ according to what you read. The most important one that I was reading about is the Tenby daffodil, and that is Narcissus pseudonarcissus subspecies obvilaris. And it does look quite different to the regular wild daffodil in that the entire flower is a bright yellow you don't have that two-tonal effect of the tepals being a lighter color than the trumpet it was first discovered in the late 18th century and people believe that it probably arose from cultivation but now is found as like a wild subspecies around tenby and it's actually the the exact narcissus pseudonarcissus that is the national flower of wales However, I would say, as I said earlier on, this is actually the part of the history of the wild daffodil that is most complicated. And I would recommend you read more about it if you're really interested in Richard Maybe's book. You can, however, go out and purchase this if you prefer the look of this particular daffodil. Just as good for wildlife, I think. Just as good for wildlife, just a slightly different form, just looks, just looks a bit different. And most recently... Double flowered cultivars of the Narcissus pseudonarcissus have also been found existing in the wild. Now, I say they've been found quite recently. There are actually records um, of similar forms growing in the wild as early as 
late 16th century and early 17th century by the botanist John Gerard and John Parkinson. However, it's only really recently that landowners have given botanists permission to dig up these particular bulbs with this particular double-flowered form. And the sources that I've read suggest that potentially in the future, they might actually be available as a as a named cultivar, but that isn't the case at the moment. So in terms of going out and buying it, you can either go for the regular, very beautiful, two-tonal, straightforward Narcissus pseudonarcissus species, or you could go maybe for the Tembi daffodil, which is the Narcissus pseudonarcissus subspecies obvelaris. And both are really, really beautiful. So I, yeah, hope we've inspired you to go and uh, go and get yourself some bulbs. Go daffod down, dilly crazy. <laughs> yes. So that concludes our native plant of the week. And hopefully you enjoyed the chat about hedges and maybe you've been inspired to take down a fence and put in a new hedge in your garden this spring do it the next podcast as ben said at the beginning is going to be in one week's time and it's going to be a very brief us thanking you guys for being fantastic listeners and for your wonderful feedback so it's just going to be a a quick um quick update on our plans for the podcast Yep, yeah, we've got um big news coming up so please do listen into that i think we'll probably crack open a beer while we're podcasting as well why not? Yeah, we've also just finished the end of a booze-free month, so... <laughs> yeah, back on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I shouldn't say that. Um, yes, yeah, so please do listen out for that in a week. And then in two weeks' time, it's actually our book club. And I don't think we talked about it this much, so maybe we should probably remind people what we're actually planning on reading. Um, we, as we said in a previous episode, have been putting in quite a few ponds this spring and they are so good for wildlife that we wanted to do a whole episode on ponds in general. So we thought our book club theme for two weeks time should be The Wildlife Pond Book by Jules Howard and that's in association with the Wildlife Trust. We will put a link to that in the show notes just so if you want to go and get yourself a copy and have a read over the next two weeks. Yeah, fairly new book, very easily available. And it's in a similar vein to the one by Kate Bradbury, which was also done with the Wildlife Trust as well. So, yeah, very readable, um, fairly concise and tells you everything, including all the blueprints that you need to do a wildlife pond. And, you know, lots of people everybody's talking about ponds with all the toads and frogs and the frogs born out at the moment but the best time to put in a pond is yesterday as they always say so yeah don't worry about the right time to put in a pond if you want one just go ahead and do it now yep so please do have a read of that alongside and we look forward to discussing it in a couple of weeks so that's a lot for you to digest for this uh this podcast which leaves us to say goodbye yeah bye bye bye